This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Joining us today on the Music Buzz podcast is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, guitarist, singer-songwriter, Ricky Bird, inducted in 2015 as part of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Ricky has had a career in music spanning over 40 years. Although best known for his time spent with the Blackhearts, Bird has also recorded with countless other musicians, uh, namely uh, Roger Daltrey, Ian Hunter, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and more. Grateful for all of his many musical achievements, Ricky is fond of saying that one of the greatest gifts he's been given happened on September 25, 1987, when he started his journey in recovery. He's been clean and sober ever since, doing whatever he can to help others recover. It's his passion and what he's most proud of, and we'll talk to Ricky about that today as well. So welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast, Ricky Bird. Thanks, man. Good to be here with you, you fine fellows. Man, we're glad you're Thank here. Thank you. You gentlemen. <laughs> That's a stretch for a couple of us. As Groucho Marx said, gentlemen, question mark. Yes. <laughs> nice. There you go. Ricky, I, I want to start by saying, what year was that that we were working on your record at Ray Kennedy's, the original room and board studio, yeah, which yeah. I, I want, so what I want to interject was one of the coolest places I was ever to, oh, me too. able to play or listen to music or anything. I think that was like 1947, if I'm not <laughs> well, mistaken. I, I hate to admit it, but. Uh, uh, let me think. Oh, God. Uh, I could have swore it was about the time George Harrison passed away. So what are we talking about? The early 90s? No, it was 2001 because I took the, I remember okay. driving down to Nashville with my Uncle Billy because they didn't want me to fly. It was right after, it was November after September 11th. Okay. So that's that's when I started the actual uh, recording process. Was I there before, I might have been down there before that, just going over songs with him or something like that. You might have. I love Ray. Oh, Ray's a great guy. He's a great guy. And that was the what ended up being lifer when it came. Yeah, out, right? I think I just use, I don't even know if any of the songs, I think Turnstile wound up on there. It, it's, it's a long convoluted story, but sure. it, it, it was such a long process. And it was my first real solo uh, extravaganza. So, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Well, we sure had some fun. We had a great time. And we had, what's his name on? Um, we had some uh, great tracks too, man. A um, couple of horn players that were from the, the Memphis Horns. Yeah. The story very quickly. Okay, I'm about, all right, it's time to do a solo record, right? And I love Steve Earle. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it was it was the album. It was the album he did right after we got out of jail, which was. Oh, uh, I feel all right. I feel all right. That. So I said, yeah, I kind of want, I want my record to have this vibe. So um, I had songs on a cassette, I think, or, or 
something like that. Anyway, I went down to Nashville and I saw Steve Earle was playing at some big cavernous, you know, looked like a warehouse or something, if I remember correctly. I can't remember where it was. And I went there and, and I kind of stalked Ray. I kept asking people, Where's, do you know Ray Kennedy? Who's Ray Kennedy? And um, I kept, oh, you just missed him. He went over here or he's, he's up in the front. He's in the soundboard. Every, no matter where I went, I just missed him. Finally, uh, uh, they said he's backstage. And I just kind of strolled backstage with some New York Bronx swagger, you know. Yeah. And there he was. So I gave him this quick, like, rap. Uh, and, and, and he said, well, well give, me a, give me a cassette, you know. So uh, <laughs> I think I handed him a cassette. And then I didn't hear from him for months and months. I'm like, well, I guess he didn't like it. And then one day I got a phone call from him saying, oh, man, I, we got it. Let's do this. It's, it was at the bottom of the stack of stuff people give him, right? He, he works his way up. So that's, and then I came down there in November and we started it. So what happened was, obviously, it's, it's a long way to go. I think I was staying, I think my Uncle Billy wasn't living down there yet, if I'm not correct. I might, maybe he was, but he had a small apartment at that point. So we, we did our tracks, if you remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then it was about, like, I couldn't, I ran out of money, you know, to go back and forth. Um, and I started to work with a guy up here named Bob Stander, who I worked with back in the 80s and the 90s, who had a, you know, a friend, bass, amazing bass player, amazing guitar player. He sure. has this great studio out in his house out in Long Island. And I said, can we try some stuff? And we tried it. And I said, well, this sounds pretty good. I sent it to Ray. He said, just finish it. Just do it up there. It sounds amazing. And that's really what Lifer was. And what I okay. did was I, I took Turnstile from that session. And Turnstile is on the Lifer record. But... Easy as that never made the record, but easy as that w wound up being covered by Chris Farlow. Oh, nice! Uh, the British blue, the British blues singer that like Rod Stewart, uh, you know, looked up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great, and and he also covered "Language of the Heart" that was on that we did that day uh, that we did down there. Okay, uh, and, and um, in fact, he flew me. Uh, Chris flew me over to to record it with him. So it was me, Chris Farlow, and um, Clem Clemson from Humble Pie. No kidding. Because he was producing a record. So we were sitting in a little circle. And we and so Chris Chris has covered about four of my tunes, which is really cool. Hmm. That's great, man. He yeah, was a cool. killer singer back in the day. Steve Marriott produced some stuff for him, right? Chris Farlow had this, has this big bellowy kind of voice, right? Sings mm -hmm. like Steve was just all, he was like a soul shouter. Right. You know, he, he just had this unbelievable, like you hear... You hear uh, last night uh, they were showing something on on the, the Christmas tree lighting at the White House that Patty Labelle sang. I'm like, yeah, I mean that's what Steve Marriott sounded like, right? <laughs> you know, like Patty Labelle. I mean, he he had this huge, soulful voice from this little guy. Uh, incredible. Yep. Yeah, I, I got to see him live once when when he was wearing that big ugly yellow coat that he wore on the back. Oh, of uh, the, go the for the throat record. The duster coat, like like a long one. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah. the weirdest looking thing, and he he had that sucker on, but he was great, man, just fabulous. Steve was his own worst enemy. He was the, so great, yeah. you know. We, I mean, I have so many great experiences uh, when he lived in the village with Pam, his wife, and Toby, who's like this British rock kid now, you know, like he's an adult in his thirties. Um, and I used to go over there, and uh, I'd stay there for a night or two. And he, we would just sit in the living room with two acoustic guitars. And he would—he was t trying to show me how to sing, you know, you know, like wow, like how do you get? How do you, you know? And he said, well, "You got to sing from way down," you know. But Ooh. he was—he uh, was an interesting—he was an interesting character. He was, you know, I mean, he was one of the—he was the first person I remember uh, towards the end of my reign of terror. I don't know, maybe eighty-six, something like that. I remember going to see Steve with, you know, one of his bands, uh, Packet of Three. He had a little okay. trio, Packet of Three. Yep. 
which is condoms, of course. And, and he was playing at a place called the Cat Club in Manhattan. And I was sitting on the bus and we, and we were both doing some dry goods. You know, and I kept doing more, 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 more. And, and Steve actually looked at me and he said, you know, you better, you, you, it'd be really, you should cut down, man. You, you're really doing too much of that. And a little part of my brain went, oh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, with Steve Marriott's telling you to mellow out. <laughs> yeah, right. You better cut back. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> wow. So you have a pair of the man's shoes, though. And how did you end up with those things? I've it was one of those uh, times at his apartment. We were, I don't know. We were look, First of all, he had like, you know, one of the guitars we've seen him with a million times, maybe a humble pie guitar, under his bed with no case. You know, just that's the way he was. And um, I don't know. We were looking at his closet. He was showing me clothes that he used to wear. And, and I, I said, oh, man, those are great shoes. And he says, hey, you want a man? Take him. And he told me he wore them on top of the pops when they were doing like, you know, yeah. Tin Soldier or something. Oh, the small faces. And, you know, I'm like, a, you know, I have a small, smallish foot, an eight and a half. And his foot was, I couldn't fit. I tried so hard to wear those goddamn shoes. But they were just about, you know, they were like a seven. Uh. <laughs> wow. I would walk around and I was like, oh, I can't wear these. Man. Can't do it. No, you'd have to cut a hole in the front and let your toes hang out. <laughs> little, little, green, little green kind of loafers, you know, like British mod loafers. Mm. Yep. Still in my closet. Very nice. cool. Well, Ricky, I want to I want to cut to uh, your latest recording, yes. which I, I did a nice deep dive into a couple of evenings ago, Sobering Times, and man, it's just great. Oh, thank All you, the sir. way through, every song, it's got something that grabs me, if not everything that grabs me. First of all, your voice sounds fantastic on everything, so if Steve Marriott was giving you some pointers, it worked out great. And age, age has helped my voice. Yeah. It's giving it some uh, schniz. I was a late bloomer as far as it come to going out singing and, and making my own stuff. And, you know, you got to use your instrument. That's the whole deal. The more you use it, the better it's going to get. I did a gig with uh, Paul Schaefer and Will Lee um, a month and a half ago in the city. It was a benefit. And um, we were sitting backstage and we were talking and they brought back pizzas. And Will, Will Lee was like, oh, I can't eat pizzas. I got to sing. I'm like, dude, when I'm recording a record, if I want that sound, we go out and have Italian food first. <laughs> you know, like, I want the cheese thing. No, yeah. There you go. And he was like, really? I'm like, oh, absolutely. Like, if you want to get your rough and ready, you know, get that kind of, like, gruff, roddy, Rod Stewarty kind of thing going, have some cheese. If your voice isn't naturally like that, which mine's not, you know, <laughs> so I would just eat all the wrong stuff. What a pleasant way to go. Huh? Yeah, right. I mean, is, is there anything better? Come on now. It works for me. Yeah, I don't, pre I don't, I'm, I'm not like a, a singer where I practice or I do vocal. You know, the key to being a good singer for your own stuff is first writing songs in your key. Exactly. And I'll tell you, I do a lot of, I have like these little bands where I had where we would do, um, uh, we would have a night at the Iridium and we would have, you know, horns and stuff. And we would just do, I would do Roadrunner. Like Roadrunner, I sing great because that's basically just soul shouting. But, like, I sing my stuff way better than I sing covers. When I sing covers, you could tell I'm not, like, a seasoned singer. You know what I mean? Like, some people yeah. can sing anything and they got that voice. When I sing my stuff, I sound really good because I'm, I'm writing stuff that I could sing really well. I know where my voice... You know your range. Yeah, and I know my range, but I also know where my voice hits, what keys my voice hits that thing where it really sells a song. Well, you know, where that really showed up, uh, and I, I realized that that... That was one of the manifestations of, of that very concept. Um, American Idol tried to have thematic weeks where you would sing an Elton John song. Well, right. don't even try, you know, <laughs> and people, yeah. 
people sounded like they were kind of a Hollywood, you know, Holiday Inn kind of lounge band when they tried to sing other people's. Same with Lennon's songs. It's very hard to sing a John Lennon song. Unless you totally make it your own. Yeah, unless you do something very special. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 It's singing is interesting. I mean, there were people like Rod Stewart, but Stewart opens his mouth and it's amazing. Um, Sam Cooke. Yep. Yeah. Mouth, you know, I mean, uh, some of, most of us have to, um, I don't know, we have to find our, or we have to find our sweet spot. Yeah. You know, like Sam Cooke and I, and Dion is a friend of mine, Dion DeMucci. Yeah. So we've talked about when he toured with Sam Cooke and he tells me stories about, it. I mean, Sam Cooke could just, you know, he'd sit here in front of you, da, 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 you know, and he would sound like Sam Cooke. I mean, really amazing. Right. Yeah. You know, he just had that quality. And you hear, dude, if you want to hear singing, did you see the 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 um, uh, documentary that, uh, what's his name, put out that they found that footage from the, the 69 um, Harlem Festival? No, I heard about it, but I, I, I haven't, haven't seen watched it yet. It yet. Well, I, I, I haven't I watched have it. Heard about it. What was it called? Summer of Soul. Yeah, that's it. It's on Netflix, I think. Gotta watch it. Okay. Because there's a, there's a spot where um, Mavis Staples, who's... Uh, oh, man. And I got to play with her at an event, which was amazing. But um, it was Mavis Staples and um, uh, one of the famous gospel singers. All of a sudden, I've just drawn a blank. And Mavis was young. And, and she, she was talking about how scared she was. They start riffing at each other. Like, you know, they, they're singing a gospel song. And they start going back and forth. And I just started bawling. I mean, like, yeah. the, the hair on your arm just I was like, what? Seriously? Wow. This is like unbelievable, you know. Uh, I got. I'm gonna have to Google. I forget who it is. She still sounds great. She was at Farm Aid maybe four years ago, I think, mm -hmm. and just fabulous. And let me tell you something. The the gig we the event we did because I do a lot of these. Or again, I did a lot of these where I was in the All Star Band, like so Liberty Devito, maybe Will Lee Schaefer, maybe or uh, um, uh, Jeff Carlisi from Thirty Eight Special. You know, Rob Arthur. You know, Rob plays with Don't Peter know. Frampton, keyboard player. It's, you know, we're also, it's sort of the same group. And then one person gets replaced when they can't, somebody else can't make it. Sure. One of the special guests was Mavis and man, sound check. She came out. This, this is really the most important thing about an entertainer. And she came over to each one of us. She knew our names. Such a pleasure to play with you, Ricky. You know what I mean? Just yeah. the sweetest, nicest, spiritual, you know, and, and damn, if her sound check wasn't as good as most people's real show. <laughs> Yeah, wow. I mean, she gave 100% at Soundcheck. It wow. was crazy. The only people I've ever seen do that, and I got a chance to play with The Who in the orchestra as the main drummer and in 2019, and they actually came over to Soundcheck because Townsend didn't like the way the background sounded on I Can See for Miles the Night Before. Right, right. They were there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and Daltrey was singing, Who Are You?, also, they ran. He wanted to do that to get it, and he was giving it everything he had. Yeah, yeah. Come on now, and I know you worked with Roger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but I, it was surprised the hell out of me to see these guys are out there busting their ass mm. at three o'clock in the afternoon. A band that's been playing since nineteen sixty four together. It was amazing to me. I mean, you, you know, everybody's different, man. Some people that are unbelievably incredible don't bother with soundcheck. You know, I'm I'm not here to judge people. You know, whatever is works for you. Fabulous, but some people are more perfectionists. Like I've I've done some stuff with Little Steven, and Little Steven is is a genius, really. And if you read your book, you'll just be, what, really? He's just you know above average at everything. You know he does, and he's always looking for new stuff to do, and he loves you know he's like saving rock and roll. There's no radio stations except for Underground Garage, really, 
that play um, all the stuff that we grew up on and also a lot of new bands. Right. I mean, every time I put a record out, he's always playing a song or two of mine, which is fabulous. When I did these events, when he was the musical director, he's very, like, sound checky, you know? You know that little guitar riff, like, in the third bar, you know, on that sing, you know, on the single? You know, do that. And I'm like, who the hell's going to hear it? It's going to go by so... Do it. It'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) Attention to detail. Attention to detail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sort of in between, you know? Um, As I get older... um, for example, on these uh, on these records, I bl- I blow on on sobering times a few times, but I'm more into melod like I'm I'm more into uh, uh, playing melodies. Uh, when I do my solos, yeah, I when I do that. my solos, uh, I'm more into doing parts now than I used to be about. Oh, let me let me show you how I could play, you know. But I do it always once or twice on the record, just so people remember that I can play lead guitar. But other than that, I would rather do parts, you know, because I remember when I was a kid that like. There's so many memorable hit singles that we remember the solos, you know, because they weren't just some guy just, yeah, there's a few of those, but we remember the ones that were, how about like uh, Leslie West's theme for an imaginary Western in Mountain? Like I could, I could sure. sing that solo to you, you know, like it, mm. it, there's certain solos that are parts. And that's what I, as I, as I do record after record, I'm getting more into, and I'm writing these new songs. And I, so far I, I have to remind myself, oh, you got to put yourself, give yourself a solo. George Harrison was was pretty masterful at it. He was pretty good at that, yes. Yeah, playing the part that really works, you know. Ricky, you've always kind of been that kind of player. I mean, you always had the chops to do whatever you wanted to do, but you were always real smart about your parts. And especially on Sobering Times, the sounds that you get on your guitar, just cool layers. Like, uh, I'm going to go through this record, by golly, one song at a time here for a second. Please do. I love the first tune, Quitting Time, great classic kind of a power pop song with a really cool bridge you're really good at bridges by the I way i do love bridges my friend and you know what not every song needs a bridge i i just realized i'm working on a song that doesn't have a bridge not every song needs a bridge sometimes you need not to have a sometimes bridge. sometimes you true. need not to have a bridge but uh quitting time i take a lot of care into the order of the record like i'm insane with that stuff i drive my co-producer bob standard uh, crazy too but luckily i mean it's it's such a new world you just keep moving it on your computer you know, yeah, as opposed right, yeah. to like when we used to have to cut the tape and move the songs. But um, Quitting Time, like some would have said, like together, the second song should have been the first song. And I'm like, nah, no, man, Quitting Time, just the way it comes in bam, with that 12 string, you know, it's great. Yeah. And and save the big shuffle stomp for the second two, yeah. you know, was the great layers on that one too? production. I, that's two different drummers. I used uh Four drummers on this record. Who's all okay, on your record? So quit quit than- time was a cat named Rich Pagano. Do you know Rich? I know Rich. Okay, so I played. I, yeah, I, I've been in his studio before. And I thought Rich would be great for that song. You know, I just thought he's because it was. It's kind of a Beatley, traveling Wilburysy, you know, yeah, kind of Tom Petty-ish vibe. You know, uh, okay. So quitting time. That's quitting time. And and that song is. Uh, you know, I like the lyrics in that, and I I do like the sound of my voice in that. And uh, dude, I take a lot of time with Bob on what kind of effect we use on my, I hate, I'm telling you that I used to hate effects, but now I love screwing around until I find the right one. That's, I'm always thinking about when I was 14, what popped out on the radio, like what kind of sounds, vocal sounds. And and let me just say off the top, me and Bob, this this will be our fourth thing we do. We really got it down. Like he's going to show me, we're going to try to save time. He's going to show me like he, I have my little book here and he comes over 
and I'm making notes of how to at least put stuff to click here by myself because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. technically, yeah, I'm all good with the computer and stuff. But when it comes to like a lot of information about Pro Tools, I go, oh, my God, am I going to ever know this? So I'm writing it all, all down, just the basic stuff. So I could put a guitar to thing. I got my mic over here all set up. I could do a vocal. I could screw around with parts here. I could try. I yeah. could work on my guitar parts here just to get them. And then we go, when, when I'm all set, we'll go to Bob's and and whoever's playing on it will you know add to the to the song. And I'll know my parts in advance instead of spending hours at Bob's house. You know when the meter's running. And, and, right. and also, if I want to do an acoustic couple of songs by myself, just me, like, you know, Bob Dylan, it with just an acoustic, I want to be able to do that in here. That's what I, that's what I got up set, up set up here. But me and Bob, when we're at his place, what we have is, I'll say to him, you know that, you know that sound, that, that pre-delay sound that when, when Robert Plant goes way down in, and then it goes way down inside, yeah. you know, yeah, let's do something like that right over here, you know. And mm. it, I, I wouldn't know how to do it if you held a gun to my head. But he, me and him have that thing, you know. I want my guitar to sound, give it a little bit more of a, sh- you know, and I just have to say, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. You know, so luckily I found a guy that we, we work great together as far as, yeah. uh, and he, you know, he's, That's we great. co-produce it. He engineers the whole stuff. And uh, I'm great at mixing. He mixes it, but I, I know in my head, no, that, that's too loud, man. Bring that, you know. The only thing, like, yeah. the only thing I sh- had to show him at one point was when he said, I think you're a little flat there. And I'm like, no, no, no. See, that's good flat. That's, that's blue. <laughs> that's not flat. That's, that's right. blue. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, so we're, that's it. That's what we're, we're leaving that, you know? So, because that's, uh, when we listen back to the stuff we grew up on, we hear p- things that don't. Sure, but man. But, but yeah, they weren't tuning those vocals. No, Come on now. No. So that, so that, you know, now you continue, but I just want to explain me and Bob have this thing where we have this language at this point. Well, and it's so, you know, you have to have, you have to work with people that understand your reference points. You know, I had, I had some young guys in here at my studio. Uh, there were good players from Nashville that a buddy of mine brought in. They were both like 20 and 21. And I said, you know, it's kind of. It, what you're playing it should kind of sound like Dear Prudence. And the guy looked at me like, like what? Dear who? I said, the second song on the White Album. Dear Prudence, that one. Yeah. Blank stare. I, the guitar player, I made a mention of, man, that's kind of cool. We're kind of getting the Exile on Main Street vibe here. He looked at me like I was from Mars. I said, here, listen, fellas, before you come back, here's 10 records you need to know <laughs> from top to bottom. Until then, don't I don't ever want to see you. Nice meeting you. Yeah, and we, we reference, we sit in his studio and I go, I want that like David Bowie Spiders from Mars vocal sound. And and then he'll just, let's throw some stuff. He goes on YouTube and we just find something. Yeah, no, that one, that one. The real tight delay, yeah. that that guy. I want that. You know, sure. so, so we got that going on. So that was quitting time. Um, I, there's a lot of good guitar riffs in that. Yeah, great. Good. I love the lyrics on that one. Very good, man. You know, well, they're all good lyrics, and your honesty about addiction and road to recovery in these songs—it's really touched me deeply. And that you're able to do it in a way that I don't know—you're not pointing your finger. Oh no, there's saying, no. Oh, you're on the wrong road. You're offering help. I'm offering the information. Like I'm yeah. laying the cards out on the table. I'm, there's no pre- preaching yeah. involved in it. You said something—a self—it's like a self-help book with a backbeat. I love that, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? There you go. That's, that's really good stuff, man. 
So yeah, Quentin Time, great. And then together, the second tune. I mean, I love a good shuffle. Yeah, I, I always pull. I, listen, I wear my influences on my sleeve, and I'm always doing a little nod Indeed. to. And I remember what got me excited when I was that 13 year old, like endings and and yeah. riffs and stuff. That's Tommy Price. Because okay. when I was writing that song, I said, yeah, Tommy, because this could be a Blackheart song. So Tommy's got to play on this one, Good. you know, and it's got that big Plays thunderish, great. thunderous, you know, yeah, you know? uh, he's got it. Big yeah. chorus. Very cool. And, and that song in particular was the one, uh, a little Stevens Underground Garage played Quit in Time in that one. Okay. And, and, and that one was the coolest song in the world for a, uh, a week in, uh, I don't know, last year. This should be a cool song again for a week yeah, starting a good, right now. Um, as far as and, and what's interesting is when I when the record was coming out, all you heard on on TV was, "Hey, we're in this together. We're in this." It was like this catchphrase. I'm like, "Dude, I got the song for this." Um, and and that's and that's what that that's what that song. Uh, uh, did you ever find yourself desperate for uh, salvation? That's yeah. that's the opening line, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and 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 that's that's the whole point. Is like I just try to I, I try to set no preaching. I, I try to just throw down, you know, what it's like, uh, the addiction is like, what recovery is like, how you could change your, change your life. And listen, if you if you have no issues with addiction or recovery, it's a great rock and roll record. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's what I was going to say. No matter, even if you didn't understand English, if you were from a country where you couldn't even tell what the dude was saying at all, there's, it's still a great rock record. It's smoking. Uh, thank you. Killer. A great double entendre in the title too, considering its release date. You know, the, yeah. these are sobering times. On this phone, there must have been seventy titles. Yeah, and mm. probably sixty-eight of them sucked, or they were used, <laughs> or they were used already, right? Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I was on the phone with somebody right in the middle of all this, and I said, "Damn, these are like really sobering times." And I just went, "Well, wait a minute, that's the title of go. the record." There it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. you're right. Yeah, it's kind of just what it is. And, and um, it's also what it is. It, and also what it is. Like, they talk about people having, you know, you, ha you have your bottom when you're, um, when you're using. And, and hopefully your bottom, because there's always another bottom. But yeah. um, hopefully you have that gift of desperation that, that help, pushes you to seek help. Yeah. And, and you basically need sobering times for that to happen. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, I like that gift of desperation. That's a beautiful phrase. Gift of desperation. Sometimes yeah. if, if people don't uh, like the word God, they use the gift of desperation. Yeah, it's nice. Right? Well, I got a question for you. So what? on Hear My Song, ah. I thought that maybe that was an outtake from Every Picture Tells a Story. What a cool tune, man. Then it felt like all of a sudden I was at a Wings recording session when, when the bridge hit. Yeah, I always, I always do that. So the, the two funny stories uh, with that song is I went down to, Na I went down to Nam um, in Nashville a couple of years ago. I actually ran into Ray there that year. No, he's always there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, so it wasn't two years ago. It might have been three years ago. And I bought that gold tone mandolin, a mando guitar. It's got six strings. And I brought it back to New York and I sat was sitting in the den on the couch and I just started playing that riff and, and I started singing, you're looking at one grateful man. And I said, okay, this is something, you know, hear my song, hear my song. Hear. And, and remember all of these songs, not together. I haven't figured out how to, how to do that acoustic yet, but I've played quit in time at treatment facilities. That's one of the things, the big things I do. I have recovery music groups. I've been doing it for like eight years. I go around the country to, uh, 
treatment facilities, detoxes, mm. you know, long-term care. And I sit there, I tell, uh, you know, I talk a little bit and I play six or seven songs. That's where this whole concept came from. It wasn't me saying I want to do a recovery record. I was doing these things and I, and I kept writing new songs and they kept asking me in treatment, the, the, the clients there, we call them clients, they're asking me, where do we take these? How can we get these, this music to take home? That led me to do the Clean Getaway record. Mm. So that's, that's where this music came from. But uh, here are my songs. So that's how I wrote it. Uh, so I, uh, I wrote it. I sent it to my friend Richie Super. And he said, yeah, it sounds like it needs a call and response. So that's why I go, hear my song, hear my song, sing along. Sha la 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 la. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I would do it at treatment, they would all sing it back. You know? Oh, cool. And, and so that's how that song came about. So I go to Steve Earle's house one day, two summers ago, his apartment in the city. Uh, I say to him, I'm always trying to write a song with him, but he's, he's doing 20 things at once. Mm-hmm. I said, let me play this new song. It's going to be on my record. And um, you know how the bridge only happens once? Mm. It used to happen twice. And, and, he, and he looked at me after I finished. He said, great song, but you only have to do a bridge once. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I went okay. Well, let me make a note of that. All right, <laughs> took, that, yep. took that goddamn bridge right out of there the second if time. If Uncle Steve says once, well, that's what we'll do then. Yeah, that's but right. I mean, some Beatle bridges go back. It, it yeah, goes true. back to it twice. But I, 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 I figured, okay, in this case, uh, you're probably right. You know, and it well, and it doesn't need one. No, nah, it's cool too. Though good, good Beatley uh, uh, twelve string guitar break, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of good little. I'm always playing like like baritone guitar or twelve string guitar. I mean, I learned a lot of that stuff from Uncle Ray. Yeah. Who had who loves that stuff. Yes, he does. Yeah, he was a big influence on me with all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, and I love it. And Bob Bob at his house has, you know, a uh, couple of good 12 strings, uh, you know, a couple of good ones, like a, a Rick. And then he's got the Dan Electro ones, mm. which um, he hands me the Rick and back a 12 string. And I'm like, dude, I cannot. So hard to get your hand on it. Forget about that. You can't even tune it. The not, the, all of the. Tuning picks oh, go in different directions. It's really. I'm like, weird. I don't even know what string I'm tuning, bro. It's like either tune it for me yeah. or give me the Dan Electro. <laughs> Let me just do it on yeah, that. Yeah, right. And the the neck's a little easier on those. It seems like. Yeah, and the, and the Dan Electros are like 400 bucks, right? Just to, yeah. they, they look like you know Jimmy Page used to play those all the time. Yeah. Well, the next tune on the record too, smoke and so- slide solo. Tired. Oh, tired. Talk about an exile on Main Street yeah. outtake. I do that well. That's a great one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, uh, you always did. I, I do uh, well. That's my. That's my. Uh, you know, that's yeah. my wheel. That's my wheelhouse. Yeah, but um, I needed, and I'm always as I'm writing, I'm like, okay, I want this kind of song. I want to. I got to have one of those. Let me get. I need a shuffle, man. I got a new shuffle called One Saturday Night for the new record. You know, great. It's, it sounds like you know, combination of like like sweet and uh, you know, like the 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 Ian Hunter descending line. One Saturday night, one Saturday, you know. Uh, nice. But um, that tune, I needed one of those songs. I had another song that I had Lib play on. I just didn't, you know, and I had horns on it, man. I had horns, the Ju- Asbury Juke horns come in and play on it. And I'm like, it's not that great. <laughs> After I finished it and spent all this money on it. So I, I started writing Tired, which is about, you know, being sick and tired, you know, uh, about being out all night and it's all that kind of jazz. And yeah, that groove is just that thing. Okay, so you know how at the end it, it, it restarts? The fake ending? Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. Where did I get that from? Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm looking on, uh, on YouTube. I don't know. I felt it. 
or it came up on my Facebook thing. It was Bruce Spring Springsteen and Steven and the E Street Band in Spain. And they were doing a song called uh, Ramrod. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Okay. So the, if you go to YouTube and you look up this, this particular performance in Spain, it's so good. Like he does the fake ending and then he's looking around. You know that he makes the Bruce faces and he's smiling and, you know, two, three, four, and the band comes back in again. You know, and he does that like two yeah. or three times. I said, oh, I, I need one of those. Got to do it. I'm tired. McCartney did that recently, quite charmingly. Did he really? Yeah, yeah. And he's always like, you know, and Steven's always got his head in there and he's like making those faces and stuff. And I'm like, wow, is this the best? This is so much like joy. There's so much like joy coming yeah. out of it with the fake endings and, and you know, the way he, he stops it and then he starts it again. It's like James Brown and his Kate, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Leaving stage. No, not quite yet. Right. Exactly. Just like that. And And the best part is when, when him and Steven are at the mic and, and it's the end of this, it's the last song. And he says, what time is it? What time is it? And they go back and forth a couple of times. And, and Bruce is like this. And Steven goes, it's boss time. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, that's that's the shit that I love when I was a kid. Like, I just can't get oh, enough yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's rock and roll. I put one of those false endings in and tired. Yep. Speaking of when you were a kid, so I was, you know, just preparing and I was reading back about your history. And so rough stuff. You joined that band when you were 16. Is that yeah. right? And played places like Max's, yep. Mercer, wow. etc. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're front, front loading this talking about present day Ricky Bird. But take us back to 16 year old Ricky Bird playing Max's with rough stuff. Yeah. So I grew up in the Bronx and then I moved to Queens when I was like 13, something like that. Uh, I got my first guitar, my acoustic guitar, when I was nine, after seeing the Beatles and the Stones. That guitar is actually in the rock hall, which is really cool. That my mm. that first acoustic that I held down to all these years. And um, so I'm a guitar player, right? So I get my first guitar, electric guitar, from Lafayette Electronics, which had a, I, you probably don't even know what that is. It, pro it was probably a Northeast kind of thing. It was, a, it was an electronic store. They sold stereos, mm -hmm. consoles. You know, uh, they had a great book that they put out every year, right? The, the, oh, those are the best know, books, With all the man. stuff yeah. that you'd look and see. Everything. Catalogs. Mm -hmm. And they'd have these guitars in the back, and little amps, tiny little amps. And I didn't have an, I didn't have an electric guitar. So um, I got myself a, oh, my mom bought me, I can't remember. Um, it was like a 335. It looked like a 335, you know. But you could play chords down here or up here, but it was tuned. It wasn't, you have to tune it. Each time you went up the neck, kind of. You know what I'm oh, saying? <laughs> like it was cheap is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and those are my first guitars. So once you have a guitar and a tiny little amp, and you're in junior high school, you're trying to find other people that play music, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you find these little uh, couple of guys, this guy, oh, you play drums? Uh, you play bass? Cool. Um, my first big amp was a uh, Guild Thunderstar bass amp. I think for a second I wanted to be a bass player. Mm. Um, and uh, so I remember that amp and then I probably played electric through it at one point but uh, you would find people and you would start playing in uh, people's garages hence the name Garage, Garage Band. Band yeah All right, right? Mm -hmm. and you would play yes, sir. and you would play and, and I remember distinctly with somebody I'm still in touch with on Facebook Dave Spindler and Steve Novak so, so that was even before the Maxis stuff Mm -hmm. And those are my first two kind of things. 
And, um, and I still talk to both of them on Facebook. And they That's lived in cool. a house in, near great, me in, yeah. in Queens. And I remember trying to learn Tommy. So Tommy came out in 69, no? Yep. Okay. Yep. So there you go. I'm 13, right? Uh, and and uh, we're trying to learn Tommy in his basement. I remember that. It's interesting because a few years, a few summers ago, my kid was taking, um, she had a summer volleyball thing somewhere in Queens, not by us. And, and, and she was still young enough where I had to, to pick her up, take her there and pick her up. So I had like two hours or three hours to spare. I went to my old neighborhood and I tried to find, you know, I went to my old building that I went to high school and all that stuff. But I went to find the houses that we used to jam in when we were teenagers. And oh, I'm, cool. I'm driving up and, and I went, oh, my God, that's it. And I actually texted Dave Spindler, who lives in, in, on the West Coast. I said, wait, what's your, what was your address? And I found, and Steve Novak lived two blocks, uh, two houses over. He was like a Keith Moon guy, bro. If I showed you pictures of cool. back him, you, he had the bangs, the black, you know, and he had the he big He was working kit. it. Yeah, he was working nice. it. And um, I found the house and there was some kid outside, a teenager, maybe a little older. And I said to him, let me ask you a question. In, in your basement, do you, is there like a, like, sort of like a ledge in the, you know, you would the shelves? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, dude, I used to play here when I was 13 years old with some guys in, in bands. You know, like we lived around here. You're kidding me. You know, and I could picture my amp up on his shelf. And wow. um, yeah, so I found these houses. So that was really cool. So that was that stage. When I started to hang out, oh, then I met some other guys, uh, a little, a couple of years older than me. Um, and I met them at a park. There was a, they used to have concerts in a couple of par Crocheron Park, Alley Pond Park. This is Queens, New York. They would have concerts. And you know, remember when you were a kid, there were bands that were locally big and you thought they were like the rock stars oh yeah oh yeah mm -hmm. right yeah for sure and they were like maybe three years older than you or something like that but they were like <laughs> right. wow man yeah. these guys are like wow they're like led zeppelin <laughs> yeah right you know so i i was at one of those concerts and i met these a couple of other guys phil bader henry carpick aldi some you know so we became friends and i'm still friends with, <laughs> with phil and al and, and, and henry on uh, uh facebook uh, a couple of the guys aren't with us anymore but um, so we put together a band, and that was what Rough Stuff was at that point. So I'm a little older, 15, 16, right? And I'm starting to hang out at clubs in the city like Max's, Mercer Art Center, which is where the Dolls played, uh, mm -hmm. Kenny's Castaways. We played Kenny's Castaways opening for uh, Willie Dixon. I didn't even know who Willie Dixon was yet. Wow. You know, uh, um, uh, and we used to hang out. I was just, I had phony proof. Like, we all had phony proof, right? I was 16. And um, uh, we played Flushing High School. So I went to Flushing High School, which was right next door to my parents' apartment where I lived. I'm, I'm saying right next door. I was late every day. <laughs> every day I'd walk into homeroom. Every day I'd walk into homeroom and Mr. Solomon would say, Ah, Mr. Bird, so glad you decided to join us today. <laughs> nice. Well, that's the sign of an artist. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, so uh, we played Flushing High School in 1973, okay? This band that turned into, I don't know if we were called, no, we were called Panda, P-A-N-D-A. -A. Uh, not the best of names, I know, but- um, Panda, uh, they <laughs> I kind of like there, it. There must have been a reason. And uh, we played <laughs> Flushing High School and we opened with, this is how long I've been into Humble Pie. And Br they turned me on really to British music because they, 
a couple, two years older than me, and they had been to England already. So they had like velvet suits. They had, um, you know, a platform boots with like, you know, stars on them and stuff. Like they, they already know. They, they saw the spiders from Mars with Bowie play. Yeah. yeah. And they wow. turned me on to all that stuff. We opened up with Four Day Creep. Humble. Yeah. So we opened up with that. I remember we did Tell Mama. I got to play with Kim Simmons at a recovery mm. event, which was really cool. Uh, from Savoy Brown. Yeah. Um, so we were doing that. We did, um, I'm an alligator. You know, we did some Bowie. We did, nice. we probably did Roxy Music. I mean, cool. nothing that anybody was doing. You know what was going on back then. Like, you know, people that were playing co- uh, high school dances, they were playing Midnight Hour. Mm, yeah. Right. Still, yeah. <laughs> you know, Louis. Yeah. Louis, Louis, Midnight Hour. Uh, hold on. Uh, Gloria. Uh, uh, Gloria. Yeah. Knock on Wood. Oh, yeah. You know, there was that staple of songs that we already played, right? Yeah. And, uh, but we were playing, man. We were playing, like, dude, we were doing Mama, We're All Crazy Now. Nice. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, so yeah. that was, th- and then we started to play in the city. Uh, and, you know, we would play church dances and stuff like that. But then we started to play in the city. I remember, I remember playing a, a temple in my neighborhood, a, a temple, a, a temple dance. And they would not let me play until i took the giant ozzy osbourne cross off that i was wearing (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know uh, uh, and i remember i remember doing i remember playing the linden beach club in queens and doing doing alice cooper songs like we're doing the ballad of dwight fry i'm really referencing stuff and the lead singer had like a fake straight jacket on. <laughs> oh, so that that's always the straight jacket one, yeah. Yeah, the straight jacket mm-hmm. one, exactly. Okay, you guys were doing that. That's yeah, we, we were just kids. We were 14, and fit, you know, this was before Rusto. But um, we started playing in the city, and then we started playing those gigs. And, um, and then I went, uh, I joined this band um, called New York Central. Uh, and they were, they had a single out on RCA. So we were trying to get signed again. So this is after rough stuff. I'm a teeny bit older, 17 maybe, uh, 18. And we started, so to make money, we would, they, they had a gig at the Pines Hotel in the Catskills. So I, then I, so now I'm in the rock band in the Catskills. And, and mm. for, for summers, like we would go over the, every weekend, we'd, we'd play in the, um, you know, in the, in the teen room, mm. you know? Uh. And it was like Honky Tonk Woman. It was like, we'd play like Walking in Rhythm. Remember that song? Uh, walk in in rhythm you know we'd, we'd play uh, um green river oh yeah right you know well, it was just like a wide but we were playing it was a teen dance thing and that's that was so that was really the first quarter of my existence it wasn't professional until i got into the band susan some cats from boston moved out to new york they put an ad in the village voice you know what the village voice is yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so the village voice i just got one dude i found one it's out again it's this thin oh wow there's no ads for music now mm, or, or, oh, or or entertainment but when we were kids that was the place you got it once a week it was free and it had every club every concert like where everybody was playing and in the back it had the um the ads looking for a singer looking for a guitar player you know guitar player looking for a band you know and I saw this band called Susan moving down from Boston. They, they were on this, there was a club in Boston, you might know, called The Rat. They, they were on this Live at the Rat album. Um, and I played there. It was a little divey, cool club in, in uh, I think it was in Harvard Yard or something, Harvard Square. 
So they moved to New York. I joined that band. Carol, my wife, um, we were, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend at that time. She knew Tommy Mottola. She brought him down. He signed us immediately to a production deal um, with Champion Entertainment, who also managed Hall & Oates, uh, Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah. A couple of people, right? So, so he's managing us, and it, we do a record on RCA, um, and that was my first professional tour, and we toured uh, opening for Graham Parker and The Rumor on the Squeezing Ooh. Out the Sparks tour. So okay. that was my first real nice. gig. We come back from that, and we, we end up at the Academy of Music in New York, and of course, the other guitar player, Tommy, decides to leave the band because that's what happens when you're starting to get some traction. Mm. S- somebody leaves. All right. Um, and then we tried to, you know, we tried to put it together with, again, with other people we had. We tried to do it as a three-piece. G.E. Smith was in Hall & Oates. He leaves Hall & Oates. He's doing a solo record. He asked me if I want to tour with him as the other second guitar player. I said, absolutely. And, and we toured his record called In the World, and we opened up for Squeeze. Um, and that was my second tour. Oh, wow. And that was cool. the... Um, I think it was Tempted, that tour, you know? Oh, tempted by a fruit. By the fruit. Yeah. 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 So, so this, my, this is after Susan then? This is after Susan. Yeah, Susan now yeah. is, Susan's over. Okay. Yeah. And But we're with the same management company. But he leaves okay. Hall & Oates and he's doing a solo record and he asked me to tour. So now I'm on tour with G.E. Smith. I come back to New York. What do I do next? You know, I'm putting together these bands. Uh, I, I'm, I become a bike messenger. And, and dude, I was awful. <laughs> at this point carol was working um, an awful messenger it was awful no because i was always i had like a thing full of joints and i was taking speed right. i was just like insane it was like it was like <laughs> so was, you were a fast awful messenger it, it, it was <laughs> yeah. like quadru- it was like quadrophenia if the star was a bike messenger <laughs> okay gotcha <laughs> okay gotcha you know what i'm saying <laughs> yes yeah. i've seen know the album seen the movie yes <laughs> so um yeah, like I would go to Carol's office. She was a publicist up at Lieber Krebs, and I would sit there smoking pot with people's packages. And, and the company would call, and say, "Where's where's my stuff?" You know. <laughs> but somewhere along the somewhere along the line, um, and I, I I didn't do that long because uh, two of the other guys in Susan, they both had accidents on their bike and broke their wrists and stuff. I said, "Yeah, this isn't for me." Along the line, Carol called and said, um, "Do you know who Joan Jett is?" I said, of course, because I saw the runaways at CBGB's. And um, uh, do you want to go down and play with her? Like, I didn't even know why. Anyway, long story short, I went down, I played, I joined the band. Uh, Eric Amble was the original guitar player. He left the band. I joined the band. We did the I Love Rock and Roll record. Hmm. Well, that was pretty good timing, Rick. <laughs> yeah. 10 million albums sold. Yeah, while they're, like while they're making their biggest uh, record. That was, uh, yeah. that was nice. Well, I remember that that point in time, and that song was just literally everywhere. And I also remember it because it was a song that was not just played on the radio everywhere, but that was real big in like um, the roller, yeah, on TV. Yeah. But the roller skating, uh, oh yeah, circuit like roller skating rinks. <laughs> so that was an amazing section of my career. Uh, we toured the world. You know, there were a couple of different versions of the band. You know, Lee and Gary. Uh, it was the I Love Rock and Roll section. Then Tommy Price and Kasim Sultan. I mean, there were a couple of drummers and bass players in between. And, and Kasim and Tommy were the, um, we were um, the Hate Myself for Loving You period. 
right? Uh, mm. And then I got sober in 87, you know, and I left uh, the Black Hearts in 91. Uh, so I was in the band for 10 years. Well, what was that like, that, that period of time when you were sober, but probably not everybody in the band was? It was challenging. I bet it was. Because I was touring and, you know, you know, you have your habits and your, your go-tos and what you do after the show and stuff. And all of a sudden you can't be around that stuff and, and you're trying to figure out how to do this. Right. Uh, but mm. I, but I was done. So I, I, I figured out a way, I mean, I, I, I did the, you know, I did the 12 step, um, community support group. I would go to meetings on the road. I had phone numbers, you know, I did what you yeah. had. I was doing the deal. You know, you decide, you make a decision and you, and you, and you try you to stick to it. it as much as you can. And, and it's not everybody was a crazy ass like I was, but and, and some people were worse than me and some people were less than me. It's just I was crazy enough that it was I thought I was going to die eventually, like soon. Mm. Um, so not everybody was like that. But, of course, when you're in that moment, you that's the only people you want to hang out with. Correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because who, who wants to, to try, hang out with people that are, you know, sober when you're not? They're kind of giving you, like, you know, stink eye. Mm. Right. Plus, they are the stimulus that you don't need either. Right. So yeah, yeah. It, it was tough. It was tough at the beginning. I mean, I would go into, if we were traveling, I would, if we were staying in a hotel, I'd go to my room, call people. Like if we were traveling right after the show on the tour bus, I would go in my bunk uh, and try to stay, uh, you know, just try to stay straight. And, and I did. I hmm. left in 91. Um, my friend was producing Roger Daltrey. He asked if I, he thought I'd be great for it. We, we jammed at a club in the West Village. So I do the Roger Daltrey record half here in New York, half at Abbey Road, which was fabulous. And then we do a radio tour. Record comes out, we do a radio tour across the country. And we did some TV like Letterman, uh, uh, mm. uh, Dennis Miller, Regis and Kathy right. Lee. Yeah. Uh, and that, so that, then it, that ends. Um, and then I get a call from Ian Hunter asking me if I want to do this tour that he does every year of Scandinavia and England. It was right around when Mick Ronson passed away. I said, yeah, of course. And I did that, and that was absolutely amazing for me, who grew up on Mount the Hoople. Oh, and, yeah, um, no question. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, then I came back, and I spent a lot of years trying to figure out, what do I do next? Like, who do I, what do I sound like? And I put together a couple of bands, and it was always like, like tag job stones. You know, like I couldn't quite figure out, well, how do I combine what I love with what I want to do? Like, how do I make it val like now? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and it took a while. I'm sure you were also emerging as someone who needed to make your own statements. And, and, and you've, at that point, your archive of musical knowledge and musical interest and, and demands of yourself obviously made it become a, a more solo effort, I would imagine. Yeah, but, but what is that effort? Uh, what is that? What am I trying to put out there? And what does it sound like? And every time I put together bands, it was just kind of like what you would expect. It was kind of stonesy. But it wasn't yeah. as good as the Stones. You know, my songs weren't there yet. It took a while. Um, and then, you know, time go moves on. Um, uh, I, I do the I do this stuff with uh, Dane and Ray down there in Nashville. You know, it's time to do my record. Years are going by. Like, I don't even remember the time frame of all this stuff. At some point in the early 2000s, I played with Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes for like a year. Mm -hmm. You know, we adopt our daughter. You know, that's, that, that changes everything. Um, I'm just doing all these things. I start doing the, the Lifer record. I think I did, you know what? I did a, a live from the bitter end 
CD. It was only supposed to be so we could book gigs. So it was me, Chasm, and Simon Kirk on drums, and me on acoustic. Huh. So we, we okay, used to play cool. out. We'd play the bitter end in New York. Um, and, and then, so I said, okay, so this is like a solo live thing. Let's just, you know, put this out. The lo- you know, you know what put it out means something different now than it used to. Yeah, yeah. sure. No yeah. question. And then I did, uh, I did lifer, you know, and, and I loved it. You know, I got great reaction. Little Steven played a song off it. Time to do, you know, and then the last part of this, this is, I started getting asked to do these recovery events. I love the, I love the vibe. I love people coming over to me afterwards and telling me, you know, it's great to see that I'm in recovery, they're in recovery, or they, unfortunately, they lost somebody to addiction, this and that. I said, well, well, maybe I could do something here. So I started doing these recovery events, starting about 2008. 2012, I wrote Broken is a Place, which is the last song on Clean Getaway, beautiful ballad. Broken is a place I've already been, right? That's the mm-hmm. tagline. Um, I, I did a quick recording, I put it online, um, and I started getting reactions from people around the world that the, I told their story. It's like, wow, I saw, wow. I didn't, I went, well, that's interesting. Again, I started writing more songs like that, more recovery songs, right? Hmm. Gave you an, a new purpose. It I gave mean, me a new purpose. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, maybe I could combine rock and roll with recovery. This is kind of cool. Then uh, once I had about six songs, I reached out to somebody that I met on, on one of these events in Florida that was a part of this treatment, worked at a treatment facility. In Florida, but they had some in New Jersey too, the same, uh, you know, same uh, uh, name. I said, what if I came to my acoustic and played, like did recovery music groups? It's like fabulous. And, and truly, I did not know what I was talking about at the time. But I went in there, you know, a couple of bumps, what to say, what not to say. You don't want to trigger anybody. I started working up this, this collection of these recovery songs. And after each group, they'd come over, like I said before, and they'd say, where do I get this stuff? Where, how, how can I take this music home? That led to me doing the Clean Getaway record. Uh, then after that, I started to write for whatever's next, and I was still in that recovery writing mode, and I couldn't write anything else yet. So that's where Sobering Times came from. That came out last year, and now um, it came out in 2020 in September on my, my 34th anniversary, recovery anniversary. But then we got a call from a distribution comp- company, and they – uh, asked if they could distribute. So it came out again in April of 2021. I see. And, and now nice. officially like worldwide wide and all that stuff. And, and now I'm just writing for whatever's next. And so far I'm not writing recovery songs. I think I've got enough to last me a couple of thousand years. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, and, congr- and congrats for your all your years of sobriety, too. Well, it's been a pleasure, Ricky. I appreciate all your story. I find it fascinating. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation. It's good to see you again, man. It's been so long. I can't wait to... Next time I come down to Nashville, I'll give you a ring. Give me a shout. Yeah, and we'll, we'll hang. We'll get together with Ray, and we'll go to, like, um, um, what is it, Meet and Three? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, plenty of meeting threes down there. RickyBird.com is if you want to find out what's going on, or if you want to um, purchase any of my um, rock and roll. Ricky Bird, B-Y-R-D. Yes. Yes. Right. B-Y. Cool. Thanks, right. Ricky. Cheers. All right, man. Have a good night. Cheers, Ricky. See ya. You too. See you, brother. All the best. You too.